you know, there's um, some phrases that we use in our society to describe transitions in life, you know, moving from one thing to the next. And uh, a couple of those are very popular, and I know that all of us have said them from one time or another. One of those phrases is this, turn the corner. Have you ever said that before? You might use it like this in a sentence, like, hey, things are changing, and we finally turn the corner on that issue. You know, we describe it like that when something that has been hard or unclear becomes easy and clearer, and we say, man, we have turned the corner. We, we might use another phrase to kind of describe the same thing, and that phrase is called over the hump. Have you ever said that before? Over the hump. Hey, we've finally gotten over the hump. Sometimes we'll, we'll use it when we talk about somebody going through an illness, or if you've ever said, yeah, I was in the hospital for, the same, for a little while. It was a little rough there, but the worst is behind us. I think I'm over the hump. That's what we describe about transitioning from worse to better or from unclear to clear. And I wonder, as we get to the end of Acts chapter 15 in our study, I wonder if some of those phrases don't apply. We would say, you know, the church has finally turned the corner on that issue. Or the church is over the hump. The worst is behind them and it's smooth sailing in front of them. If you recall from last week's message in Acts 15... There was quite the controversy brewing in the church, wasn't there? Do you remember what it was? The broad issue was, how are Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians going to come together and exist as one unified church? The gospel was being preached to Jews. The gospel was being preached to Gentiles. There were both groups accepting of Jesus, but they weren't really accepting of each other very well. How are they going to accept one another. Another issue that was brewing was that you had a number of Jewish Christians who were kind of had the, uh, the mentality of, hey, look, if you Gentiles want to be a Christian, then you have to become like one of us Jews first. You have to believe in Jesus, but you also have to, you know, eat the things we eat. You have to keep all 613 rules that we keep in all of our festivals. And, and fellas, you're going to have to have a little surgical procedure to be a Christian. And the Gentiles were like, fooey on that. We're not doing that. We're not going to keep your weird rules to, to be a Christian. And so there was controversy about this. Well, as you studied with us last week, many of you, then you know that there was a big meeting in the city of Jerusalem between the church leaders and the elders. So you had like Peter and James, you had Paul and Barnabas, and you had many others that got together to try to consider and make some, you know, decisions on this issue. And what, they, what came from that was really, I would call, a common sense compromise for the church that did not sacrifice any of the sacred truths of God. They reached a point of agreement. And you, you read it and you go, well, I think they've turned a corner. I think they've gotten over the hump. Now, I know because I know the rest of the book of Acts and the New, the New Testament there were plenty of people that struggled with this. this. This issue of harmony in the church between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, it's going to take years and years. And, and, and Paul and others will write about this in other letters of the New Testament. It's going to take a long time. But a decision was made, common sense compromise that didn't sacrifice the truths of, of, of the Lord, and it put the church on a path for God's broader vision to be realized that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be 
saved. So this letter was written, the decision was made, and they send this letter with Paul and Barnabas. They take it back to Antioch and they deliver the message to the church. This letter was supposed to be shared with all the Christians everywhere in the Christian world. And it was supposed to be, you know, kind of the, the standard. This is how we're going to operate around these questions. So as we come to Acts chapter 16, you're going to see that Paul and Barnabas desire to set out on the road again. They are going to take off and journey on what is going to be known later as Paul's second missionary journey. Now I want you to turn to your neighbor and I just want you to say those words to your neighbor. Paul's second missionary journey. Go ahead, I'm going to give you a second. Paul's second missionary journey. I know it's silly, but this is how we remember stuff, right? Some of you guys are going to be driving home today and you're going to look at your wife and go, Paul's second missionary journey. That's what, you know, I want you to remember that, that th there's these journeys that they go on. Why did they, why did they travel? Why did they do this? Be you know, there's going to be three in total of these missionary journeys. Well, first of all, Paul and Barnabas had a real desire to go visit all these new places and all these new Christians that they had planted on their first missionary journey. In fact, if you look at your Bible, look at Acts chapter 15, verse 36. It's right at the end of chapter 15. It says, sometime later, Paul and Barnabas said, let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. So in other words, all that part that we read about in Acts 13 and 14, Paul's first journey, they want to go back and check up on the church. And that's a natural feeling. There was another reason for why they wanted to hit the road again. They needed to share this letter. They needed to tell all the Christians about the decision that was made in Jerusalem. Look at chapter 16, verse 4. What's it say? As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they grew daily in numbers. They had to spread the word. They did not want this false teaching and to spread any further. They wanted to set the record straight. So they, they needed to go and do that. There was a third reason why they wanted to hit the road, though. Because Paul and Barnabas has had for a long time and continue to have throughout the book of Acts just this strong, incredible desire to reach more and more people with the good news of Jesus. They wanted to take this message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified to new places that the word of God has not, the word of Jesus has not been to yet. And so there was this strong desire to do that. So, Acts chapter 16, verse 1, all the way to Acts chapter 18, verse 22, it catalogs and describes the second journey that Paul sets out on to reach all these new places and to do the three things that we just discussed about a moment ago. Now, when we come to Acts 16, 1 to 18, 22, it's a good time to just kind of pause and once again go look at a map. And if you've got maps in the back of your Bible, they're going to have one very similar to what I'm going to show you here. This is a map that outlines Paul's second missionary journey. Now, if you're familiar at all with this part of the world, you're going to recognize this is the Mediterranean Sea. This is Egypt down here in the south. Here you have the city of Jerusalem. This is where Jesus died on the cross and rose to life. This is where the day of Pentecost happened. This is where the church all started. And you're going to see the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. All of that area is what we know today as the Holy Land. 
you head up north a little bit, you see the city of Antioch. This is where Paul and Barnabas spent a good deal of their time. It was in Antioch where we saw a lot of Gentiles becoming Christians. It is also the city where they were called Christians first. In Antioch, before anywhere else, it was there. And as you just kind of look out through Galatia, this is the area here where the first missionary journey happened. It took several years. They planted a number of churches. Now, this here shows you how much farther west Paul and Barnabas desired to take the word of God. This is Paul's second journey. He goes a lot farther to the west. And as they go farther west, we are introduced to new cities that we haven't come or read about yet in the book of Acts. You have like Macedonia, Philippi, Thessalonica, Athens, Corinth. You've got the province of Galatia right up here, which is modern-day Turkey. And, and so you, you have these new places. And I just want to help connect a dot for you. Um, when you read the New Testament, a good number of the books of the New Testament are actually letters that Paul wrote to Christians living in different cities. And so, for example, um, if you were to look at First and Second Corinthians, those are two letters that Paul wrote to the Christians in the city of Corinth. This is a city where Paul will plant a church during his second missionary journey, and he will, years later, write a letter to them to give them instructions. If you were to open your New Testament and go to the book of Philippians, that was a letter <coughs> written by Paul to the Christians in the city of Philippi, another place where Paul started a church on the second missionary journey. The book of Galatians was a letter written to a number of churches in the province of Galatia that many of them Paul started. Take Ephesians. That was a letter written by Paul to the Christians in the city of Ephesus. Take First and Second Thessalonians. That were, those were letters written to the Christians living in the city of Thessalonica. And, you know, these are all places that Paul planted churches. And so you have the New Testament is a collection, really, in many ways, of letters written to Christians in these new cities that were popping up and these new fellowships. And Paul would write, and these letters are full of doctrine that still guide the church today. They are full of practical teaching and, and, and guidance from the Lord, inspired words that guide the church today. It's just as relevant today as it was when Paul wrote the letter to these churches on his journey. Now, if you've read Acts chapter 16 already, then you know that it didn't start out all that well, did it? There is a disagreement right at the beginning of the trip between Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas, they completely agreed on the need that they need to take this trip. But they could not agree on the composition of the team. They couldn't agree on who should go with them. And so this disagreement became so sharp and so heated that they just decided, we're going to go separate ways for this trip. Barnabas, he took a guy named John Mark, who happened to be his cousin, and they set off in one direction. Paul, he partnered up with Silas, and they traveled off in another direction. They went different ways. Uh, Barnabas and John Mark, they set sail to the island of Cyprus. This is where some of the churches were that they started on their first journey. They focused their attention there. Paul and Silas, they went by land, and they visited the churches north of there, and then they continued. And so Acts chapter 16, 1 through 18, 22 is a record of what Paul and Silas did. Not so much what Barnabas and John Mark did, but what Paul 
and Silas did on this second missionary journey. Now, they will make up later, and all will be well. But at this point, they decided to go separate ways, and God blessed both of them. Now, this little dust-up between Paul and Barnabas, I think it serves as a good reminder for the church today that even though these men did great things from, for God, and God used them in mighty and powerful ways, at the end of the day, they're just people. Fallible, imperfect people. Th these are guys that I am confident didn't always use the right words in every situation. These are guys that are probably thankful that not every word that came out of their mouth is recorded for all eternity, okay? They made mistakes. They, they weren't perfect. They're, they're not like Jesus. They're not perfect people. I like how one author put it, and I totally agree with it, and it resonates with me. If God had to depend on perfect people to do his work, then he would never get anything done. Isn't that true? If, if God had to depend on perfect people to accomplish his work, he would never get anything done. We're seeing an example of this right here in Acts chapter 16. We see it around us all the time. So Paul and Silas, they set off to visit these existing churches to start new ones if the Lord will, wills it. And we're not going to read all of chapter 16 together, but I do encourage you to read it on your own. Because when you do, the, one of the first names that you're going to see at the beginning of chapter 16 is a man named Timothy. If you're familiar with the New Testament, Timothy is a well-known person in the New Testament. But we're introduced to him here in the book of Acts. We learn that Timothy uh, started down this faith journey because he had a godly grandmother and a godly mother. Anybody have a godly grandmother or mother that started you down your faith journey? That you're a Christian today because of them? Absolutely. That's Timothy. Paul would take Timothy under his wing. Timothy was kind of like a son to Paul. And so Timothy joins Paul early in the second missionary journey. Now later on, Paul will leave Timothy in the city of Ephesus, and years later, Paul will write a letter to Timothy, who is leading the church in Ephesus, and there, there's two letters, actually, and they are known in the New Testament as what? First and second, Timothy. So we meet him at the very beginning here. We also meet a lady by the name of Lydia. Lydia was a businesswoman in the city of Philippi. She dealt with purple cloth, which was a very expensive, rare cloth. We know that uh, uh, when Paul and Silas, they came into the city of Philippi, they were looking for a place of worship, but there wasn't one. There was a place where some people, a very few people, they went outside the city. There was this place down by a river, and that was a quiet place where the few worshipers would, would worship. This kind of shows you just how lost the city of Philippi was. My understanding of how a Jewish synagogue was started back in this day, it would take 10 godly Jewish men to band together and to start a synagogue. So many people theorized that because there wasn't a, a synagogue already in Philippi, there wasn't a house of worship or anything like that, it probably just shows you the godless state that the city of Philippi was in. So the few people that feared God and worshiped, they would find themselves outside the city down by this river. And so that's where we meet Lydia. She was a worshiper. She had some faith in God, but she wasn't a Christian. 
she uh, was seeking something that was higher than herself. You know, like there's an understanding there's a God, there was a fear for God, but, but uh, she reminds me kind of a lot of people today. There's a lot of people in our world that would describe themselves as spiritual. They are seekers. They believe in a higher power. They might even say they worship God. But Lydia, just like a lot of people today, they're missing the one key thing that they need the most. And that key thing is what? Jesus. She was missing Jesus. And so there she was, worshiping God. She was praying. And she meets Paul and Silas. And she becomes a Christian. They share the good news of Jesus. It's the missing link in her pursuit. And it says in, in, in chapter 16, verse 15, that Lydia gets baptized. And so here you have, you have Paul, you have Silas, you have Timothy, and now you have Lydia, who could very possibly be the very first Christian in the city of Philippi. They together start this effort to reach people in the city of Philippi and to start a faith community there, a Christian church. So I'd like for us to pick up in verse 16. This is where we're going to start reading and picking up with Paul and his journey in the city of Philippi. Lydia is a Christian now, and here's what happens. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, and I just have to stop right there for just a minute, and I want to ask you, did you notice something different about that verse that we haven't seen before in the book of Acts? Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, what I'm referring to is there is a pronoun shift in Acts 16, 16. Once when we were going to the place of prayer. This is new because everything up to this point in Acts has been they went, Paul went, Peter did this. But now we have this shift in pronoun. We went to these places. What is going on there? This is really quite an important detail. We haven't talked much about Luke but Luke is the one who wrote the book of Acts. Luke also wrote the Gospel of Luke, and the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are supposed to go together, a volume one and a volume two. They go together. Luke um, was a traveling companion of Paul's, but Luke wasn't with him every day of his life. There were times that Luke would join, and then Paul would move on, and Luke would stay, and so there's these times that Luke was with him. And Acts chapter 16 is the part of the story of the early church where Luke joins um, Paul in this work. It's on the second missionary journey. So as Paul is, excuse me, as Luke is writing the record of the early church, the parts that he was a part of, an eyewitness, he changes it from they to we. So Luke most likely joined Paul in Troas, which was the city right before they came to Philippi. So he joins them now in Troas. They go to Philippi together, and it's not they anymore. It is we. There's three we sections in the book of Acts. It has, happens here in Acts 16. It will happen again in Acts chapter 20, and it will happen a third time in Acts chapter 27. So we are now together. Luke has joined them. By the time we get to Acts chapter 17, Paul is going to go on to Thessalonica, and the language shifts again. It will go from we to they, which most likely means Luke stayed behind in Philippi to continue to work. Now, I hope that makes sense as we kind of move. It's an important detail that, uh, that uh, is important to me as I understand what's happening here at this part in Paul's missionary journey. So let's look at it again. It says in verse 16, 
Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. Now, miracles are still very much a part of the early church. We see it all throughout the book of Acts. We're going to see, again, more miracles in the last part of the book of Acts, and we see it in the New Testament. Miracles were a big part of Jesus' ministry. It's a huge part of the early church. And here you have a miracle. There is this slave girl, which the fact that she's described as a slave girl just tells you the lostness of Philippi, doesn't it? It tells you something about our culture. Slavery was acceptable. People were mistreated. This is the, the, Philippi was very lost. So you have this slave girl. She's hanging around these Christians and, uh, who were praying down by this river. And she had a demon in her. Jesus encountered demonic activity. And the early church is exposed to demonic activity. And you know, when you come to parts in the Bible where there are demonic activity and, and things like this that we're reading here in Acts chapter 16, it should serve to us as a reminder um, that everywhere in the world where the gospel is trying to be advanced, the devil is close by. Everywhere the gospel is trying to be advanced, the devil is close by. Now, how in the world did she get this demon in her? I have no idea. The Bible doesn't tell us how she came to get this demon, but this demon had been with her for a while, it seems. It seems like the devil had his troops on the ground in Philippi long before Paul and Silas got there. They were prepared. They were ready. The devil wasn't about to give up the city of Philippi to the Holy Spirit. Now, this is for a, a totally different series of sermons. But don't think for a second, church, that the devil is going to roll over and give in to the New Life Christian Church family and not fight us for every lost soul in this community. He is still active. And there is still a demonic presence in this world. And the church still runs into this all the time. Don't think for a second that the devil is going to roll over and let us have it. Not in the least. So this demon gave this girl some kind of ability. The Bible refers to fortune telling and there was something, uh, to, to what level, I, I don't know. Was there some trickery involved? Would this demon allow her to mimic things? We just don't know. But the people that own this little girl, they saw a cash cow <laughs> right in front of them. So they used this girl to make money. And so this little girl finds her, well, we assume she's little, this girl, she finds she finds Paul and Silas, and this demon inside of her runs into the presence of people filled with the Holy Spirit, and even this demon cannot help but speak the truth. And, and so this demon, through this little girl, he starts to speak out that, that these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. That's how the demons know the truth. 
And in the presence of people filled with the Holy Spirit, they're fairly powerless, and even this demon speaks what the truth is. Now, why did Paul become so annoyed? I don't know exactly. It seems like Paul and Silas, they let this go on for a number of days. Um, many have theorized that maybe since this girl was involved with fortune-telling and things that, that were just, you know, evil, and, 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 but she was also saying that these men are telling you the truth, some have argued that maybe there was kind of a conflict of interest. Paul was preaching and teaching about Jesus, and then you have this girl that's involved with fortune-telling and, and things like that also saying these men are from the Lord, and maybe Paul was like, yeah, that's too much of a conflict of interest. Maybe we're overthinking it just a little. Maybe Paul was just annoyed by the sound of her voice. I wouldn't put that past him. You know what? You've been hanging around here, and I'm just so annoyed by you. I'm going to do something. We don't, maybe we're just overthinking it. Paul was annoyed, and he turns to this girl, and he says, in the name of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say in the name of Paul. He doesn't say in the name of the church. He, doesn't say, he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. I command you. And at that moment, the spirit left her. Now, this is a great thing for the little girl. This is a terrible thing for the people who owned her. All of a sudden, something changed because whatever her ability was, when the demon was gone, she didn't have it anymore. And when these guys figured out that their cash cow was gone, they flipped out. Look at verse 19. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone... They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept and practice. Isn't it funny that they had no problem with what Paul and Silas were preaching until they lost their slave girl? You know, when, when all of a sudden it affects our livelihood and our money, you know, we can put up with a lot. But the second it hits my wallet, then I got a problem. So they got a problem because it affected their wallet. Now look at verse 22. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. And after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, if you are reading this for the very first time, and I know that there is a good number of folks in our church family between our four services who've never read Acts before, and this is as far as they've gotten. Acts chapter 16 is as far as they've read, and so they don't know what happens next. And maybe you're in that camp. You, you don't know what's going to happen next, and if you are, that's fine, but you might be thinking one of two thoughts right now, and the first thought might be this, Wow. It looks like this could be the end of the road for Paul and Silas. Doesn't look good. Stripped and beaten and with rods sev severely flogged. Their feet are in stocks. It doesn't look like they're getting out of this one. Now you might have that thought. But you might also be having this thought as well. You know, God's people in the book of Acts, they sure have a knack for miraculous escapes from prisons. And, you know, if you're thinking that, that, you know, God's people just kind of have a, you know, just a knack for getting out of prison, you're on the right track because they do. And, and the stage is being set for another one of these miraculous prison breaks. Now, look at verse 25. It says that about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying 
and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Somebody say, that's pretty impressive. I mean, that's impressive, isn't it? They weren't complaining about their situation, at least that's not what's recorded. They're not complaining. They're not um, calling upon God to cast judgment on their enemies. They're, they're not like saying, God, you know, those guys that own that slave girl, we just did a good thing, and now we're suffering for it. Can you cast down fire from heaven and wipe them out? There, there, there's no record of any kind of prayer like that. It says that Paul and Silas were doing what? Praying and praising God in that jail cell. And I read that, and, and I ask myself the question, and I'll lay this question at your feet too. Is there a lesson in that for us today? Your darkest moment and you pray and pray. Is there, is there a lesson? I believe there is. And that lesson is this. That prayer and praise are powerful weapons. Prayer and praise are powerful weapons. Here's something that I know to be true of every single person in this room today. Every single one of us experiences times and circumstances in our lives that can cause us to feel very off or down. Seasons of struggle that will often leave us feeling like, like emotionally anyway, we have been beaten and flogged. We all experience that. Those, those times in our life where we feel like we're just being dragged off, locked away, broken, abused. There are those times in life where it's easy to feel like every single person is against us and we're being attacked on every side. There are these times in our lives where it, I've, just been, I've been mistreated, I, I'm, I'm misunderstood, people are taking advantage of me. There's these sometimes intense seasons where we feel like uh, success is evading me. Loneliness wants to rule everything. Regret wants to dominate every single thought. Now some of us in this room experience a number of those things at such an intense level. It's hard to comprehend. Others, maybe not quite so intense, but all of us, to some degree, experiences those things throughout different seasons of our lives. We need to remember this all the time, but especially in those very, very hard times, is that prayer and praise are powerful weapons. Now, in the Old Testament, there's an incredible story, there's an incredible example of this, you don't need to turn there, but it's found in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. And I'm going to invite you to go back and on your own time read 2 Chronicles chapter 20. It will lift you up, I promise you. But I want to say a few things about it. And uh, in your app, I referenced this scripture verse for this scripture um, so you can go back and look at it. But the story revolves around a man named Jehoshaphat. He was the king of Judah. Now, if you're familiar enough with the Old Testament and the history of the Israelites, this is during the time of what's known as the divided kingdom. And so King Jehoshaphat was the king of Judah. This is the, 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 the Jewish people residing around the city of Jerusalem. 
And King Jehoshaphat gets word one day that a number of armies have all unified against him and they are marching against him. They're going to wipe out Jerusalem, destroy him and all the people of God, and they're going to be here tomorrow. Can you imagine getting word like that? Now, now Jehoshaphat's army is just not, there's no match for what's marching against him. And so what King Jehoshaphat does in 2 Chronicles 20 is that he gets all the people of Judah together, all the men, all the wives, and all the children, and they gather together, and they begin to pray to God, and there's this long prayer, and you can read it on your own, but it culminates with this. Jehoshaphat says, God, we, we don't know what we're going to do against this vast army attacking us. We do not what, know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Can you imagine if a politician ever stood up in front of Congress and said, let's pray, and I want to pray that way. God, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are going to be on you. Now, wouldn't that be something? So here you have the king of Judah who's praying a prayer like this. So God sends a message to the king of Judah through a Levite, through a priest, and, and he gives him this message. He says, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out and face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. That's it. That's the instruction. Don't be afraid. God's going to go with you, but definitely go out and face them tomorrow. Can you imagine? Well, Jehoshaphat, what he does, he leads the, the whole nation in a time of praise and worship to God, and, and they pray, and, and, and it's this great worship service. The, the very next day, King Jehoshaphat, he appoints some singers, and he sends them out in front of the army. Now, imagine this. Jehoshaphat raises up a choir and says, you lead us. There's not a general in the world that would ever send out a choir to be the front lines of battle. Again, they don't know what's going to happen. But this choir goes out and they start singing. And the Bible even records the lyrics of the song. Give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. Now, don't we sing a song like that pretty regularly? Give thanks to the Lord our God and say his love endures forever. That's the song they're singing. And when they start to sing this song, God ambushes these unified armies against his people. He confuses them. It's a, it's a great story. It's a, he confuses them, and they all start turning on each other. And, and then when Jehoshaphat and the choir and the people of Israel, they, they get out to the battlefield, you know what they see? It's kind of dark and morbid, but the whole battlefield is laid waste of dead bodies. And they realized that God had given them the victory, and they did not even have to draw a sword. They plunder all the goods they can take. They take it back to Jerusalem. They hit the city. Everybody meets in the, the temple courts area. They grab every instrument. They can find harps and trumpets, and they let out a praise to God. They spend the rest of the day singing praises to God. Friends, prayer and praise are powerful weapons. And please don't ever view our praise and worship times here at New Life as just that part of the service that we do before we get to the sermon. That would be so much a mentality of devaluing what that part is. And please don't ever see the prayers that we pray as obligatory parts of our worship service. No. Prayer and praise to our Heavenly Father are powerful weapons. 
So here in Philippi, you have Paul and Silas, and they are sitting in that jail cell. It's about midnight, and they are praying, and they are praising God, and everybody in the jail hears it. And then this happens. Look at verse 26. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. Now, that's more like it. Now, we're getting back to the way Acts feels, right? It's like we've grown so accustomed to this kind of thing now. It would be more surprising if God didn't do this than the Bible read. The next day, they were beheaded and that was the end of them. It was, what? No, 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 no. We had come to expect, that's kind of dark too, sorry. But, you know, we come to expect that God moves in this way. And so, yeah, the, 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 the ground was shaken, the doors fly open, the chains fall off. But here's maybe even something that's more miraculous. Paul and Silas don't leave jail. They don't leave. None of the prisoners leave. They just, they just stay put. Now look at verse 27. The jailer woke up. And when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. Why would the jailer want to kill himself? Now, we looked at this a couple weeks ago. Roman law said if you are a soldier, if you are in charge of, of, of guarding a prisoner, if they get away under your watch, then you receive their penalty. So obviously there were some hardened criminals in the jail that night. Some capital crimes had been committed. And this soldier knew that he was toast anyway. Might as well avoid the shame and all, the, all that public execution. He was going to take his life. But Paul stopped him before he could do it. What does that tell us about Paul? That he stopped this jailer from killing himself. What does that tell us about Paul? It tells us that if Paul had a hard and vengeful heart in him, or he had a hard way about him, he would have just let that jailer take his own life. But that, that's not Paul. I mean, no, I have no doubts at all that this jailer was at a minimum a jerk to Paul and Silas. He might have very easily been one of the soldiers who beat and flogged Paul and Silas. At any rate, he wasn't nice to them. There was no reason to be nice to prisoners. It would be a very understandable if Paul and Silas would have been like, eh, don't stop that, just let him fall on that sword. But I think it's a better indication that in Paul's eyes, it was the jailer who was the prisoner. Not Paul. The jailer was the prisoner. Paul not only saved the man's life that night, but he pointed him to eternal life in Christ Jesus. Now, look at verse 29. We're just about done. The jailer called for lights. He rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in the house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then, he immediate, then immediately he and all of his household were baptized. 
the jailer brought them into his house, set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. He and his whole household. The jailer that night asked the most important question that any person could ever ask in all the world. What must I do to be saved? That is a question that many of us in this room have asked and have answered. Maybe some of you in this room have asked that question, but you've not answered it yet. But friends, I, I want to tell you, it's the most important question that anybody could ask, and you will get asked, and you, like Paul, better have the right answer ready to go. Paul's answer was absolutely correct. It is faith in Jesus Christ. What do I got to do to be saved? Believe in Jesus Christ. Now, it's not like this for everybody, but there was an immediate transformation in the jailer's life when he received the Lord. It was immediate. I mean, it probably has everything to do with just how dramatic this whole ordeal was, but his attitude shifted immediately. He went from abuser to caring for the wounds of those he has abused. Friends, that is a transformation that only the Lord can make in somebody's life. Now, I'm going to let you finish up the chapter all on your own. It's a fascinating read when you discover what happens when the sun comes up the next day, but I'll let you handle that one on your own. But as we start to unpack the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey, we see that God is very much at work, and the cause of Christ moves forward even though Difficult challenge and difficult relationships are at play. We, we see the, the cause of Christ moving forward. At times, brothers and sisters in Christ, we're going to have struggles with one another. Why? Because just like Paul and Barnabas, we're fallible people. We're not perfect. Our expectations aren't always realistic. People um, bring us down at times. People will upset us. There are difficult relationships that are existing all the time and Acts chapter 16 is an example of this but even in the midst of that the gospel the good news continues to press on and God continues to bless God bless Paul in his journeys God bless bless Barnabas on his journey we, we also see in this second missionary journey that that sometimes problems absolutely come from way outside the church when in Philippi, when Paul and Silas were trying to, to, to reach people for Jesus and this demon-possessed girl was freed from her, from her agony and, and then Paul and Silas were arrested for that. And they were beaten and flogged and thrown in jail and all of that. There, there are t even today, friends, you know this, the church is constantly facing pressure from the outside wanting to disrupt what the Lord is doing here. And we see this very clearly in Paul's second missionary journey. You know what else we see? We also see that people come to Christ in all kinds of different ways, that everybody's got a unique story, and there's not one person who's just like the other. At the very beginning of Acts 16, we, we meet Timothy. And how did he come to know the Lord? Well, it started with a godly grandmother and a godly mother and a mentor named Paul, and he chose to follow Christ. What about Lydia? How did she meet the Lord? She met the Lord down by a quiet river, reflecting on the Lord, where she had a conversation with Paul and Silas, and she received Christ. What about this jailer? 
His conversion was quite dramatic. One minute, he is a potential suicide, and the next minute, he's a child of God. We see all throughout different people and different backgrounds and histories that the cause of Christ continues to move on. Different people, different experience, yet all changed by the grace of God. And is that any different than us today? I would say, no, it's not. Some of you came to Christ like the jailer. Very dramatic experience, and it was an immediate turn. Others of us, it was a long process. Maybe some of you right now are still in that journey of discovery. I'm kind of more like Timothy. I was just raised in a Christian home. In some ways, you could argue you became a Christian by default. I think I was, I was, I think I was in church within a week of my birth, and I don't think I've missed much since. No, I did have to own my faith at some point in my life, and that happened around college when I really began to own this thing called Christianity. But we all have different stories. We all have different relationships. There's all these ups and downs. But what we see in the book of Acts and what is consistently seen throughout the history of the church and even here at New Life, the cause of Christ continues to advance. What started in the book of Acts continues right here in Bella Vista, Arkansas. And it's by the grace of God that it happened. Aren't you glad God uses, you know, imperfect people to do his will? That means we're all specialists. <laughs> I'm thankful. I'm thankful to be a part of a fellowship of the imperfect, aren't you? That God still chooses to use to advance his mission. Let's give God some glory today. Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we just lift up your name because your name is great. And Lord, you have done great things in our lives. And Lord, even this morning as we witness this baptism, we are reminded that you are at work all the time. Lord, I pray that we see ourselves as the continuation of the apostles' work in the book of Acts. That Lord, right in front of us is our mission field. And I pray, Lord, you give us a boldness and a courage through any circumstance to advance the gospel. Lord, this is our prayer. And we thank you, Lord, you find us worthy to be a part of your great mission. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.